Good morning. Nurses go on strike at two area hospitals demanding better wages and working conditions. The Bidens go to Mexico, Brazil's coup attempt aftermath, and Jeffrey Epstein in the sacking of an attorney general. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durianzo with the news for Tuesday morning, January 10th, 2023. Thousands of nurses went on strike in New York early Monday as negotiations between their union and two city hospitals broke down. Approximately 7,100 nurses at the Mount Sinai Hospital in Manhattan and Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx walked off the job after negotiations between the two institutions and the New York State Nurses Association failed. On the picket line outside of Mount Sinai Hospital, Attorney General Letitia James spoke in support of the nurses, as did union chiefs from throughout the city. A new state law requires hospitals and nursing homes to maintain safe staffing ratios, but the pandemic has delayed its enforcement. Let's be clear, it's not about money. The one issue, the one issue that they care about the most, my friends, is the enforcement of the law. Yes. And I want everyone to know that last year, a law was passed in New York State. Yes, it was. Which required safe staffing. What does that mean? It means the imposition of ratios from mm-hmm. patients to nurses. That's right. And was it enforced? No. Management should be ashamed of themselves. They're put these nurses in this situation. I do not know how they sleep at night. And we are not going to stand by when this hospital puts profits over patient care. We are not going to stand by when they have ran this operation into the ground and now have 500 plus vacancies. It's utterly ridiculous. <laughs> It's the largest nurses strike in decades in New York City. Nurses say they're struggling with exhaustion and burnout after three years of the COVID-19 pandemic and are standing their ground to improve conditions for themselves and their patients. Sarah, a nurse, was on the picket line with her baby. I actually work at Kings County, but I'm also a NISNA member, and I'm really just here to support my fellow NISNA members while they try to get the staffing that they deserve, that we all deserve, that all of our patients deserve. It's about, it's not about, is it about money or is it about time, treatment, work conditions? The only monetary factor here is that the wage changes that they've proposed aren't even keeping up with inflation. As human beings, we do need to survive, we do need to support our families, and we need wages that reflect that. Yes, I'm here with my baby. I'm not the only nurse that has a family. Even the nurses that don't have families need wages that they can live on. Top three years, we know it. I've been here in New York the last three years for a nurse or a health professional at any level. It's been a difficult three years. Yeah, it's been it's been very difficult. And and you know, COVID was like a complete patient care disaster. But the reality is that that disaster is actually still happening every day. And people are dying because of the lack of safe staffing. And so one of the things that the nurses here and the nurses at Monty are fighting for are staffing ratios that are enforceable. So right now they could just do a whole runaround, 
series of meetings that lend in, end in mediation that don't have any consequences for the hospital when they violate staffing. And, and it's like we don't see change with that. Sarah. Union leaders say at Mount Sinai, nurses care for as many as 18 patients at a time. While at Montefiore, patients are often kept in hallways. Hospital managers claim they're doing what they can during a national nursing shortage. Last month in Britain, nurses went on strike for the first time in the 74-year history of the country's National Health Service. The UK government says the demands are unaffordable. Meanwhile, in Washington, the new GOP House leadership fulfilled a promise made by new Speaker Representative Kevin McCarthy. The majority's first bill is to cut $71 billion from Internal Revenue Service enforcement. I know the night is late, but when we come back, our very first bill will repeal the funding for 87,000 new hours. You see, we believe government should be to help you, not go after you. The budget cut would eliminate 87,000 new IRS employees who were to be hired to go after taxes owed by wealthy individuals and corporations. In related news, the House passed a set of rules for the next two years. The package contains the concessions made by McCarthy to hard-right Trump supporters in his bruising multi-ballot struggle to become Speaker. The rules give any member of the body power to block a bill that's supported by McCarthy. And President Joe Biden arrived in Mexico today for a meeting with his counterpart, Andre Manuel Lopez Obrador, at the North American Leaders Summit, where Biden will also meet Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. First Lady Jill Biden had this to say. Love is the mortar that holds us together. Love makes us flexible and resilient, helping us to become more than ourselves. It teaches us to protect, provide, care for each other, and give our hearts completely, no matter the cost. It pushes us to fight for justice and opportunities in these countries we call home. It makes us bold and brave so we can build a better world for the generations to come. Together, the United States and Mexico imagine a world with these shared values. Both AMLO and Biden are attempting to patch up relations after tense interactions with former President Donald Trump, whose main issue with Mexico was to build his wall along the southern border. Biden stopped at a section of the wall on his way to the summit. Last week, the administration announced a new crackdown on refugees, using a law to control COVID-19 to send 30,000 Haitians, Cubans, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans back to Mexico each month. But the policy is unpopular on the right and left, of the political spectrum, Texas Governor Greg Abbott. The president who caused the chaos of the border needed to be here. It just so happens he's two years and about $20 billion too late. He needs to step up and, and take swift action, uh, including uh, reimbursing the state of Texas for the money that we spent, but providing more resources for the federal government to do its job. Homeland Security Chief Alejandro Mayorkas says he's not banning refugees. And I've seen um, the criticism of it as a ban, but it is not a ban at all. What we're trying to do is, um, and more broadly, incentivize a safe and orderly way 
and cut out the smuggling organizations. The U.S. conducted nearly 345,000 expulsions of El Salvadorans, Guatemalans, and Hondurans in fiscal year 2022. The vast majority were sent back to Mexico. Small numbers of Cubans, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans had also been returned to Mexico prior to last week's announcement. You're listening to the news from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo. President Lula da Silva arrived in Brasilia to inspect the damage caused by supporters of former President Jair Bolsonaro over the weekend. Thousands of far-right militants spent weeks demanding Brazil's military overthrow the progressive president and return Bolsonaro to power. On Sunday, they invaded and destroyed the headquarters of the Congress, the presidency, and the Supreme Court. Lula described the coup attempt as promoted by fascist vandals and barbaric, accusing Bolsonaro of stimulating these anti-democratic acts with his attitude. Lula got support from world leaders and State Department spokesperson Ned Price. We condemn this violence. Violence is uh, never appropriate. It's never the answer. Uh, Brazil's democratic institutions have uh, our full support, as we always are. Uh, we are standing by for any requests requests for assistance uh, from our Brazilian partners, from Brazilian authorities, whether those come through diplomatic channels, whether they come through law enforcement channels. Uh, and we will, of course, uh, respond to those requests uh, as appropriate. The United States and Brazil, we are close partners. We work together day to day on any number uh, of matters and issues. And oftentimes those are matters of law enforcement. We have well-honed processes in place. Uh, to cooperate where requests are made for information or potentially for action uh, on the part of Brazil to the United States. In this case, uh, we have not yet received any requests for information or for action. Price said anyone entering on a visa for foreign officials, that would mean Bolsonaro, needs to leave the U.S. within 30 days or apply for a change of immigration status. Alexander Main is Director of International Policy at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. He says the assault on Brasilia by Bolsonaro supporters was comparable to the assault on the United States Capitol two years ago. Everything was very well organized. They had uh, buses that were sent to six states in Brazil, six different states that bused people in for this. The security authorities in Brazil had to have known about it. It's astonishing that they didn't act at all, but I think that's one of the salient features of what's happening now in these coup attempts, whether the one yesterday in Brazil or the one in the U.S. two years ago, is that you have the social media phenomena, which really drives people to take rather absurd stances based on complete misinformation. In this case, there was this strong belief that the military was going to support the protesters and that Lula could easily be kicked out of office. We saw the same thing really in the U.S. on January 6th, two years ago. What about the role of um, people like Steve Bannon? You have some really significant far-right networks that are operating at the global level now, again, using social media, a very effective tool 
to manipulate and fanaticize vulnerable, uh, gullible sectors of the population. What's the driving force between people's, uh, the right wing's anger there, the populist anger that's going on there? There is some diversity that you see among protesters in Brazil compared to what we saw on January 6th in the U.S., which was not all white, but almost all white. And in Brazil, it was a little bit more diverse. But there's this idea that they are empowering, you know, the African, the Afro-Brazilian communities of the northeast of Brazil that tend to be, of course, very low income, poorly educated and so on, that they are being empowered and supported and are displacing true patriots of Brazil, this sort of discourse, right? And, and all these people just consider themselves patriots. And there's this very strong racism against the people of the north of Brazil that are much darker skinned. And so we're seeing some similarities there for sure. And I mean, Bolsonaro has done plenty of dog whistling, very racist dog whistling, similarly to Trump, that's been very effective. How do you think Lula is going to respond to this threat? He's in a very comfortable position, actually, politically right now, because this is a big difference with the U.S. You have all the political parties, including the liberal party of Bolsonaro. All of the leadership has come out very strongly against what happened. And you even have the governor of Brasilia, who's from the right wing opposition, who wanted to apologize to Lula for what happened. And so it's a very different stance. He has already signed a decree in which he's committed, the attorney general is committed to pursuing you know, all those responsible, including those that financed this whole operation, because it required a lot of funding, all these buses that went and got people from around the country to be taken to the Brazilian Congress. There's going to be significant crackdown. Much of Brazil's public opinion is supportive of that. We'll see what happens in the weeks to come, but I think this has actually strengthened Lula's hand against the far-right sectors of the country that essentially want to topple his government. Incapable of changing the government, where do these people wind up in the end? Some of them wind up in Florida, in fact. <laughs> Southern Florida welcomes these sorts of people, the far-right folks from yeah. Latin America that you know, have no success with their far-right agenda in, in their countries are welcomed with open arms in South Florida, and that's where Bolsonaro is currently located. He's in Orlando. A lot of them do end up in exile, where, of course, they conspire with some of their comrades in the Cuban-American far-right community in South Florida and the Venezuelan far-right community in Southern Florida, and, and they work together with U.S. politicians, with folks like Senator Marco Rubio and, and others, they conspire to target what they call sort of the communist threat in Latin America. And I think we're going to see a lot of that in the next four years of Lula's mandate in Brazil. A lot of conspiring going on in the U.S. and probably a lot of right-wing politicians from the U.S. involved in that conspiring. Alexander Main is Director of International Policy at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. In related news, Bolsonaro checked into a Florida hospital Monday. Shortly after losing the election last week, he took up residence near Orlando. In a tweet, Bolsonaro says he's suffering from abdominal pain relating to a stabbing in 2018. In Brazil, authorities say they've detained more than 1,000 people and cleared an encampment outside a military compound.
And in the continuing saga of deceased billionaire Jeffrey Epstein, who is accused of masterminding a prostitution and human trafficking ring that served the wealthy and powerful, the former Attorney General, Denise George, was fired by Governor Alfred Bryan Jr. on New Year's Eve, four days after the office sued J.P. Morgan Chase in federal court in Manhattan for its dealings with Epstein. Epstein died of an apparent suicide in 2019 while in federal custody. Journalist Marlon Ettinger has been covering the Epstein drama. He says the George lawsuit against J.P. Morgan alleged the financial institution acted as a bank for Epstein's human trafficking enterprise. He was cultivating connections with officials in the U.S. Virgin Islands. For instance, he had a company called Southern Trust, which facilitated, according to this lawsuit, a lot of payments to women, hush money. The office manager at Southern Trust was a woman named Carolyn DeJong, who was the wife of the two-term governor of the U.S. Virgin Islands, not the current governor, but a previous governor. At the time that that guy, DeJong, was governor of the U.S. Virgin Islands, the current governor, Governor Bryan, worked for something called the Economic Development Corporation, which essentially provided tax breaks to companies to come in to the U.S. Virgin Islands. And in 2014, this guy, Bryan, currently the governor, was working for the Economic Development Commission, signed off on huge tax breaks for Southern Trust, Epstein's company. So it might be the why Brian fired the new storage now, because in the lawsuit she filed on December 27th, which goes after J.P. Morgan Chase, she also alleges he improperly obtained this approval for these tax breaks in 2014. These tax breaks are huge amounts of money. There's a couple of different numbers cited in some of the lawsuits. In one, she says $80 million, another $144 million that was signed off on by the current governor. He had already paid the Virgin Islands for taxes or other monies that hadn't been paid, $105 million. Is that separate? When Epstein died, his estate was based in the U.S. Virgin Islands, and it was administered by two guys, Darren Indyke and Richard Kahn, the U.S. Virgin Islands government under Denise George, who's the AG, sued the estate. And some of the what came out of that process was a victim's compensation fund, which paid out millions to victims. And then there was a settlement directly with the government of the island. That was included in it, the financial crimes. They had hidden money. They had improperly obtained tax breaks because Southern Trust claimed to be providing consulting services. Of course, there's no record of any legitimate economic activity. And there's also a whole web of other companies that gets complicated very quickly. But essentially... Jeffrey Epstein on paper is what they are. Southern Trust didn't do anything. I mean, it was a company that didn't do anything, you're saying. They said they would provide consulting services, bioinformatics, data mining, but according to the government's lawsuit, there's no evidence of them ever doing anything related to any of that. What they were actually doing was paying off hush money to victims, paying you know people who were facilitating the enterprise. How do you know that? That's what the suit alleges. J.P. Morgan, how do they get involved in this? What's their connection? The lawsuit was aimed against them, and it says that they were actually involved with this. They have a sort of what they call a but-for provision in in law. Essentially, but-for the action of J.P. Morgan, Epstein would pay off a lot of his victims, $200 for massages. He would withdraw all this cash. He was abusing hundreds of girls multiple times every year. So where was he getting his cash from? Well, he was withdrawing it from his J.P. Morgan accounts. At one point, at the peak, I think in 2004, according to the lawsuit, he withdrew around $200,000 worth of cash. From the get-go, 
that's a red flag. Banks have obligations. Know your customer laws. Banking Secrecy Act laws are a couple of the ones the government cites. You see stuff like that, you got to investigate it. They're a sophisticated financial institution. After 2006, there was no reason they shouldn't have reviewed his accounts and seen these obvious signs of a criminal sex trafficking enterprise. In fact, in 2008, when Bernie Madoff went down, Bernie Madoff ran his Ponzi scheme through J.P. Morgan accounts. They ordered an internal review of all accounts to try to figure out if there are any other bad actors. So they should have caught him, and in fact they did, presumably, but they turned a blind eye because Epstein was bringing in, A, a lot of money to J.P. Morgan, just even from his own funds, but he also was ensuring that Leslie Wexner, a billionaire who was his main client, kept his money in J.P. Morgan Chase, and then he brought his friend Glenn Dugan, who was this guy who owned Highbridge Capital, another billionaire, into an agreement with J.P. Morgan Chase. And this is what the, uh, the, the suit alleges happens, that they found this relationship so lucrative that they willingly turned a blind eye to an obvious criminal sex trafficking enterprise. Journalist Marlon Ettinger is working on a book about the Jeffrey Epstein scandal. And finally, opening arguments are set to begin this week in another seditious conspiracy trial related to the January 6th invasion of the U.S. Capitol. Longtime Proud Boys leader Henry Enrique Tarrio and four other members of the group are charged with plotting to forcibly halt the certification of Biden's 2020 election win. The trial comes weeks after the sedition convictions of two leaders of the right-wing militia group Oath Keepers. The Proud Boys are a far-right extremist group self-described as Western chauvinists or men who refused to apologize for creating the modern world, as they put it. The group became notorious in September 2020 after former President Trump urged members of the group to stand back and stand by during a presidential debate after being asked to condemn violent white supremacist groups. And that's the news for Tuesday morning, January 10th, 2023. You can hear the news at pauldurienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.